Thank you for joining us for this message from More Life Church, where we exist to love God, to love people, and to reach a region for Jesus and to make a difference for generations to come. Now, to learn more about how we're reaching our community and how you can partner with us and learn how God has uniquely designed you, check out Grow Steps On Demand by visiting morelifechurch.com slash growsteps or by downloading our app today. But for now, enjoy today's message. We are in part five of a message series that I've entitled Worship More Than a Song. And uh, today is the second part of the More Than a Song um, uh, portion of the series. And so we started this last week by introducing nine ways to connect with God outside of, of music. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna carry on with that um, today. Um, I wonder, um, how many of you remember, just by show of hands, inter- interact with me for just a moment, how many of you remember your very first plane ride? Can I, can I see your hands if you remember? Your very, okay. Um, so um, my very first plane ride, actually, interestingly enough, was with my um, Italian grandparents. My mother's side, if you've been with us very long, you know my mother's side of the family immigrated here from Italy. They, they took the boat, the old the old you know, traditional story of, of um, uh, father, husband coming ahead to the, to the new land, earning money and sending it back to the family and them taking the long boat ride here right through Ellis Island. And, and uh, we've, we've been to Ellis Island and saw all those, all those things. And um, so my very first plane ride was with my Italian um, grandmother and grandfather, and it was quite an interesting excursion. This is pre-9-11, so security's quite a bit different. Uh, my grandfather had had a massive heart attack and had had a um, defibrillator um, uh, put in his, his body. It actually was on his, on his, in his stomach area, and you can actually see the defibrillator protrude. And the defibrillator would kind of bring the heart back into rhythm. And so he had... Um, he had a, a pass to not go through the metal detector because the metal detector would, would set off his defibrillator and he didn't, he didn't want that. So, so as we're going through the airport, I can, I can remember to this day, my grandfather made a massive deal about his defibrillator and we still joke about it now long after he's, he's passed away. But he went through that, the security checkpoint and was asking all of the security people to touch his defibrillator to prove that he actually, <laughs> to, to like he was like wanting to prove that he actually had it. And I can still hear him in my, in my mind, I can hear his voice saying, go ahead, you can touch, look, you can see, the, the, you can see, go touch, you touch. And so that, so then we get on the plane and I'm there with my, my partially um, English speaking grandparents and for the very first time, I feel that exhilarating feeling of when the plane leaves the earth. And whatever sensation you feel, you probably can remember that the first time when it's just kind of like, whoom, and you feel that, whatever that sensation is. And I, re- I remember, and it still happens to this day, like there's a, there's a bit of awe and wonder in me every time that plane takes off. Uh, and when it lands properly is a great moment as well, right? And, but I, and, I, and I think through that, and I'm like, wow, that is absolutely amazing that this, however many thousands of pounds of metal can fly at hundreds of miles 
through the air and get you to a destination safely in a matter of a, a couple hours, which would normally take you dozens of hours to get there, right? You can just zip through and all in the wonder. And I mention that because if man can create something like that, how much more should we be in awe of the presence and power of God and hungry to experience his working in our own lives? And that's what I really come to you with today is a heart that wants to bring you back to awe and wonder for the things of God. And I'm gonna cover three of the nine ways in which we connect with God. And, and what I want you to do is, I want you to listen up uh, for, for your way in these next couple weeks. And if, and if it's a minute before we get to you, don't worry. Um, listen in because someone you know is endeavoring to connect with God in a deeper, more meaningful way. And through this teaching, you may end up with a principle that, that unlocks something in their heart that will help them connect better with God. And that is your assignment. Uh, remember, Paul told Timothy this. He said, teach faithful people who will teach others also. So everyone in this room, to some degree, is a teacher of the word of God, a teacher of principles. It could be with an employee, a fellow employee, or maybe you own a business and someone that's on your staff and you see them struggling and you listen in today and you don't necessarily hear your way of connecting with God, but you can understand enough to say, oh, this might be the very thing that unlocks their path to God in a meaningful way and you can kind of inject something that you're learning here this morning. Or it could be for a spouse or maybe it's your way of connecting with God and you're like, man, I want that fire to be stoked and, and I want to really have a deeper connection with God. These three um, have been labeled by Gary Thomas who came up with all nine, the, the, the paths of wonder. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 29, this has been the main focus of our, of our looking at the, the purpose of worship. And 1 Chronicles 16, 29 says this. Give, everybody say give. Give, give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Janet shared a similar passage from another place in, the, in, in Scripture that says almost verbatim the exact same thing. There is something that's interesting that I want you to make note of. Two things that you need to know before we go any further. That today we're building on an already established foundation that is nearly 18 years in the making. In other words, I've been endeavoring to teach you God's word and his principles for 18 years. And I'm just building on top of that foundation. I'm not resetting the foundation. I'm not taking away anything that you've already been taught and substituting something inferior in its place. I'm building another layer on top of the foundation of the word of God. In case you hear something that you're like, well, what about this? Just let's not leave the fundamentals of what we've already been taught. That, that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is this, that these are individual, everybody say individual. Individual ways of connecting with God. That means that when you're by yourself, when you're pursuing your relationship with God, um, there is not um, any pressure 
on any local church to offer all nine ways in any one public service. And you're gonna see how this might be in conflict in a little bit, but this is an individual thing. And then when we come together, our assignment is to bring an offering to give to God the glory that is due his name, and we do that by giving him our best. God, he wants your worship. He wants your worship according to the way that he's made you. Look at Mark chapter 12 with me if you have your Bibles. Mark chapter 12, 28 through 31. Interesting interaction with Jesus and some religious leaders. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. We looked at this quite a lot last week, but just in the form of a, a brief recap, Jesus says that you're to love your God. So there's a personal relationship that you have with him. With your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. These are yours. They're no one else's. That isn't a small point because you cannot delegate your mind to someone else. You can't delegate your heart, your soul, or your strength to anyone else. This is your responsibility. And Jesus, he addresses what I'm gonna call whole person worship. Your heart is your adoration. Your soul is what you will and what you desire. Your mind is your belief, and your strength is your body. So. Having said that, these are yours, and these three that I'm gonna cover today are the naturalist, the sensate, and the traditionalist. The naturalist, he or she loves God outdoors. The sensate worships God with their senses, and the traditionalist uses rituals, symbols, sacrifice, and sacraments. So there's a key phrase Attached to each one, I'm gonna jump right into it. The naturalist key phrase is this. In their endeavor to connect with God, they cry, let me be outdoors, let me be outside. The sensate says, let me experience. And the traditionalist cries out, let me remember. So, as we look at these, I wanna briefly cover some church history. I'm not in a boring kind of um, academic way, but in a, in a way that just kind of shows you um, how division enters into our lives. It's interesting to me that the very thing Jesus prayed for as it relates to his church is the very thing that we have the largest struggle with. And one of Jesus' final prayers is this, let them have unity, let them be one, Father, just like you and I are one. It's interesting to me that the thing that Jesus cried out for is the very thing that historically the church has suffered with, which is division. And it, and it happens over these personal 
preference type things. Think about this. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, if you were to go, my, my mother came here from Italy and they were, uh, she was raised Roman Catholic. And we would go to Christmas Eve Mass. And when you go to a Catholic church, the center of their worship is an ornate altar. The priest, in fact, will oftentimes in the Mass um, bow before the altar, kiss the altar. In fact, the, the congregants, as they come in, they do the sign of the cross as they cross the aisle past the altar. So the altar, the symbol, was the main thing in their expression of faith to God. Then comes Luther, and he leads the Reformation, and he changes the worship expression. Sola Scriptura, only this text, only the scriptures. And so he changes it, and his expression of worship leads to a massive reformation. And instead of the altar being the key point of the worship, it now becomes the pulpit. And so the pulpit is then elevated. Along comes Calvin, and he is dissatisfied with the approach to stay separate from the world and crosses the line between church and state and endeavors to have people who are believers engage in prominent places in culture and society, political office and so on and so forth. And so the expression of worship changes. From there, you have another group and then another group and then comes along John Wesley who sees an impressive expression of faith from one group of people in the very face of death. They don't let go of their faith and so Methodism is born out of that. Fast forward a little bit further to Azusa Street, then, then the Holy Spirit becomes kind of the main expression of our worship and Pentecostalism is born. It's very interesting that I just covered those and my mom, she went from Roman Catholicism to Pentecostalism in one big jump. <laughs> now you know why I'm messed up. <laughs> no, I, I love these traditions and it helps me see things, I think in a very, very unique way. And I wanna pass that on a, a little bit today. Here, here's, here's the thing that I want you to focus on. Instead of learning from one another, we Christians have often chosen to segregate ourselves by starting new denominations, new movements, and new churches every time our personal preferences converge with someone different from us. And I think that's a, I think that's a tragedy. It happens in local churches still. There will be individuals who are maybe really enthusiastic about their worship. That's, that's kind of what we all receive from Pentecostalism. Any church where there's the raising of hands and music with a beat and the clapping of hand, hands, that all stemmed out of Azusa Street, changing the expression of faith. There's very few congregations on the planet who haven't been affected by that and positively impacted. There are individuals who they must feel and they haven't really been to church until they've felt something. Then there are others who've, who've come to me and gotten upset that you must do communion every single week. You're not even saved if you don't partake in the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ every single week. And this traditionalist 
form of expression kind of invades. And what we're doing is, in those cases where we're saying we have to have this, what we're trying to do is impose our individual way of connecting with God on a local body of believers who are all bringing their measure of faith to worship God together in the way that God has created them. There's one God, but many expressions of worship to him. Right? So we have to think through that together. And that's what I'm endeavoring to lead us through. The, the first one that I'm gonna cover today that I want you to look at is the naturalist. David is a beautiful example of a biblical naturalist. They love God by being outdoors. Psalm 19.1, which David pens, he describes it this way. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Watch this. They have no speech, creation. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Paul sees it this way in Romans chapter one, verse 20, and says this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, watch this, from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God says, creation is evidence enough that there is a creator. Look at the field and the mountains and all that exists in the earth and the naturalists is energized in their expression of faith outdoors. It's interesting that each, I think that each way in which we connect with God has a contaminated version to it. So let me just say it this way. I think that um, extreme environmentalists, people who love creation more than people, have a misguided approach to the naturalist bent. What they're really saying, and no one has maybe been able to influence them, what they're really saying is there is something awe-inspiring about nature, and I want to protect it, and the error is they worship creation rather than the creator, and no one has been able to influence them to say, this awe and wonder that you're experiencing is drawing you to God, but you've misguided it and set your affection on the tree, or the whale, or the turtle. Nothing wrong with taking care of the earth. There is something wrong with worshiping it, because give God the glory do his name. We worship him because he has done these marvelous works. My wife very much is, is a naturalist. And um, I love the verse when, it, when Jesus talks about if your father dresses the birds and flowers, how much more will he take care of you? He, he looks at nature and says, if God takes care of the needs of his creation, don't forget you're part of his creation. He's going to take care of you as well. And um, my wife and I, we had an opportunity uh, a couple years ago, uh, some friends of ours from Bible college, they've, they've, uh, he, we've, Angie and I graduated with him and he's married now and they have a very successful food service business and so they flew us to Canada um, and wanted us to spend some time in their cabin which was in Manitoba, way north in Manitoba. 
And so we went a few years ago, and um, we were on our way there, and we were driving forever. Like, Canada is forever north. <laughs> I mean, it goes a long way. And we were going forever north. This is as secluded as I've ever been, and sometimes I exaggerate for effect, but what I'm about to say is not an exaggeration. We passed a sign that said, you are now leaving 911 emergency coverage. My wife immediately panicked as a wife who has a husband with a stent and she kind of freaked out a little bit for a few minutes. I don't know if I can express, unless you've been there, it's hard to imagine being in a place so far out that they're basically saying, if you need 911, you're dead. <laughs> it's very unsettling. <laughs> it's very unsettling. But we were, we were there and it was a beautiful cabin on the lake and they had paddle boards and so we took our paddle boards out on the lake one, one morning and as we were paddle boarding on this crystal clear, smooth as glass surface lake, all of a sudden there's an eagle flying overhead. Majestic. It dives grabs something out of the water and disappears away into the tree line. Like, it was so beautiful. And I sat there thinking, my God, what an amazing creation. I wasn't worshiping it, but it was a reminder to me of how marvelous God is. It was just, it was just all inspiring. Some of the expressions of worship for the naturalist are they want to visualize scriptural truth. They want to be able to see God more clearly and nature helps them to do that. Something that's important to them is learning to rest. Something for the naturalist about being able to hear the wind blow and feel the wind on their face. Being at the beach and hearing the waves crash and the salt water mist just carry in and hit your face and glasses and make your book a little bit damp. The smell of a bonfire and the hearing of the crackling wood as it burns outdoors. The smell, I, I knew my wife was a naturalist when we would go out into the woods and, or out on a country drive and she would say, can you smell that fresh country air, which really is manure that's just blown in your direction. And everyone in Licking County understands that reality. Some of the temptations for the naturalist is to be individualistic, individualism, just to, just to retreat and be away from everyone. Spiritual delusion, idolizing nature. Some of the applications for a naturalist would be to do this. If this is you or you know someone like this, encourage them with these steps. Take your Bible outside this afternoon or sometime in the porch. A naturalist would love a nice, cool, rainy June day with a thunderstorm and a covered porch to sit out there and listen and feel as you read God's word. Meditate on what you're seeing. Just look around the next time you're driving east on a dawn having worship music on and see the sunrise and the skyscape with all of its brilliant colors and watch and see if you don't feel 
drawn into who God is. Simply go for a casual walk with no purpose attached to it except to look around and maybe spend time with a loved one. My wife, I'm back to Canada for a moment. My wife is such a, such a naturalist. The night before this happened, um, I had cooked um, uh, a steak, a couple of steaks for us. Our host had provided meals for us. And so there were a couple of uh, New York strip steaks and I built a fire and they gave me a cast iron skillet. And I don't know, it's something, something I, if, you're, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, just ignore what I'm about to say, but um, I, my food's gotta have parents. Come on, somebody. Like, like, nothing like cooking a New York strip with just butter over an open fire and an iron, cast iron skillet. I mean, oh man, it'll make a Baptist pray in tongues. I mean, it's just beautiful. But I'm a city guy and I forgot to dump out the butter from the skillet. Went to bed. That morning, I was up reading, looked out the window, and there's a black bear licking my iron skillet. <laughs> Took a picture of it. Remember, there's no 911 coverage where we are. <laughs> they gave me this bear horn and bear spray which I wasn't really interested in figuring out how to work, either one. I told, so, so I told Andrew, like, there's a black bear out there. She's like, no, there isn't. I said, so we went out and of course it's gone. I showed her the photo. We have our coffee, breakfast, whatever. Breakfast inside, not outside. And um, I go to do something and come back and I can't find her. She's gone. Like, gone, go gone. Like, she's nowhere to be found. So there's two paths, one that goes to the road, one that goes to the lake. And so I take the one that goes to the lake and right in the middle of the path is a massive, fresh dropping of a bear. We're outside of 911 territory, remember. And I'm thinking, how long does it take a bear to process its food? And did it just eat my wife? And I'm like looking through, <laughs> is there an earring or a necklace? What am I looking at? <laughs> I was panicking. And so she wasn't, I went all the way down the lake, nowhere to be found. So I come back up and here she comes around the corner out of like this brush. I'm like, what are you doing? She's got this little bowl full of berries. Like I'm picking berries. I'm like you saw the bear, right? <laughs> and I'm out there with, you know, my headgear and my horn and like ready, ready to defend myself. And here's the thing that I realized, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun Ange. <laughs> 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 Right? And so, so I'm like, what are you doing? She said, I'm picking berries. I'm like, why are you fighting this bear for its food source? Get inside. Like, I'm panicking. So, like, she's so naturalist, she's willing to risk life and limb to be out in, in nature. The key phrase, remember, let me be outdoors. Let me be outdoors. Let's move on. Sensates, number two. Ezekiel is an, an interesting example of this. Um, oftentimes, God will speak to us in a still, small voice. But with Ezekiel as a sensate, we see God relating to him the way he's made him. And you'll see loud and bright imagery with Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter three, verse three, says this, and he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. So I ate, watch this, this imagery, I ate it and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Describes receiving God's word as a 
sweet taste of honey. Ezekiel chapter three, verse 12 says this, then the spirit lifted me. Remember the sensei says, I wanna experience. The spirit lifted me and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice. Blessed is the glory of the Lord from his place. I also heard those noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another and the noise of the wheel beside them and a great thunderous noise. If you jump down to verse 15, all of his senses are being engaged and he, he finally comes to the place where he says, then I came to the captives at Tel Aviv who dwelt by the river Kabar and I sat where they sat and remained there, watch this word, astonished and wonder. Among them, seven days. This is the last time you had an experience with God so rich, so vibrant, so awe-inspiring that you just meditated on it and couldn't get away from it for an entire week. This is what Ezekiel experiences. These expressions of worship are all about awaking the senses. Sound, smell, sight, touch, taste. The temptations for the sensate are to worship without conviction, to idolize beauty. Watch this one. The temptation is worshiping worship. Getting mad at other people because they don't get into the music portion like you do. It might sound like this. What's wrong with these people? Don't they feel what's going on in the room, how can they just sit there and stare? Because <laughs> they're not made the way you are and they're experiencing God differently and this is your individual way of experiencing, experiencing him. Now those who observe those who feel and are expressive ought not to look and say, what in the heck is that person doing with that flag and shofar? That's just a little Pentecostalism for you. Go research it or you'll be, you'll be impressed. They're prophetic banners. Never mind, I don't, don't know, let me go. <laughs> Martin Luther said that the word of God is meant to be heard, not simply read. Remember, Paul says this, for faith comes by, how does it come? by hearing and by hearing the word of God. I wonder if anyone has had the same experience that I've had of reading through a chapter in your Bible and getting a handful of verses in and get distracted by something and realize you don't know what you've just read for the last three verses. And so then you have self-condemnation and guilt that enters in because you're trying to read and do the religious duty of reading your Bible, but as you are silently reading the words on the page, other things find their way into your brain. And so then you have this big tug of war and spend the rest of the few minutes of your devotional time in condemnation because you've not done what you were supposed to do and so it's a big spiritual tug of war. But when you change your approach, it's very hard to get distracted and let me just see if I can demonstrate it for you by reading Psalm 23, which is a beautiful expression of David who is a naturalist, but watch how the naturalist side using it through Spoken word can engage your senses as well. And listen for the imagery. 
we all know this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of of the Lord forever. The word of God is meant to be heard, not just silently read. Let me experience, is what the sensate says. I wanna draw your attention to an interesting way in which the brain works that's attached to one of your senses, and that is the sense of smell. If you're hard of smelling, I, I just, Bear with me as I share this, but when you smell something, science has proven this out, that the smell will take you back in time to a certain place where that smell was familiar to you. There are certain things about the fragrance of my mom that when I smell it, I'm like, oh, I remember she wore that perfume. Or, the smell of incense. In the Catholic faith, there's incense that's used, and it was used at my grandmother's funeral mass, and they wave the, the instrument with the incense above and around the casket on the way out of the, of the sanctuary as they leave. And it engages the senses, and it causes you to kind of time travel and remember. But the sensate says, I want to, I want to experience. The traditionalist says, I want to remember. Ezra is a beautiful example of a traditionalist. He brought back the faith of Israel after they'd been conquered. If you read through and you can see his story, he reminded Israel of scheduled feasts, scheduled fasts, the old ways of doing Judaism, the rituals that were a part of it. The traditionalist comes alive with routine and predictability. Now, I'm gonna say this again, but I wanna say it on the front end so you don't find me saying something I'm not intending to say. Please hear me. Rituals can't and do not save us. Jesus saves us, okay? He's the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to get to the Father is through him. Rituals don't save us, but watch this. They can remind us of the power of Jesus' saving grace in our life. They don't give us faith, but they can't strengthen our faith. This is a difficult one for me because the tradition that I was brought up in was really far removed from ritual, symbol, tradition, sacrifice. But listen to what Numbers 15.37 says. It says, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout generations. It's to be repeated over and over as a tradition and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel, watch this, for a reason that you may look upon it and remember 
all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Here are the temptations of the traditionalist. The first one is this. The temptation is serving God, but not knowing God. To think that my attending a church means I know Jesus. So many people meet the church before they meet God. Especially if you grew up in in church and your parents went to church and your grandparents went to church and they made you go to church, you experienced the church before you experience God. And you can think that serving is the same thing as knowing. It's not. Temptation is to judge others, to form opinions, to be mechanical in your repetition, to deify or worship rites and doctrines. Mechanical repetition and some applications for a traditionalist might be to select a psalm or a proverb to read once a day, to practice um, written prayer, or to follow the church calendar and celebrate significant days like Pentecost, Advent, or Lent. Um, at, at various times, I've given things up. Sometimes it's, in, it's coincided with the, the church calendar, and I've given up caffeine or sugar or chocolate for, for Lent. I, I haven't done that in a while, and jokingly, a couple times ago, one of my pastor friends said, um, his name's Dave, and Dave's a great guy, he pastors here in Newark, and he said, Josh, what are, what are you giving up this year for Lent? And I said, this year I'm giving up self-control. <laughs> that's, I think that's funny, but anyway. I'm gonna eat whatever I want, and if it doesn't, you know, anyway. But in the years in which I have abstained from something, Easter cannot get here fast enough. You give up caffeine or candy or chocolate, it's like Easter is on a slow crawl toward you. Takes forever. Why is that a good thing? Well, the sacrifice and the abstaining of that thing is meant to cause you to sacrifice and feel pain. Not that you love pain, but it, what, is it, what is it about? It's to cause you to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. You giving up chocolate, me giving up soda, pales in comparison to the stripes he received and the nails in his hands and his feet as he was beaten and bruised and died for us. Tradition and ritual can be a very powerful thing, but I want to remind you, rituals don't save. They just bring back to your memory the power of God. They don't give you faith, but they can strengthen your faith. When I think about written prayers, it totally, totally messes Totally messes with my church upbringing. The idea of someone reading and repeating an already written prayer makes me do weird things on the inside. 
It weirds me out a little bit. But then one day I thought, well, wait a minute. Could there be some good in this? Who teaches the new believer how to pray? How do they learn? Oh, well, you just tell them to talk to God like, like he's their friend. Well, that's good. But in my pastoral experience, that fell short. And what, they ended, what people end up doing then is not praying at all, which is the opposite of what I'm hoping for in the spiritual development of a person. So in our prayer guide, we put some already established prayers so that we could teach you in a very real way how to pray in line with God's word. The traditions can serve us. Let me give you an example of this in my own life. My mom was, I, I, I think, I, my dad definitely is a traditionalist. Like it's the same, I mean, there are some, like, I, I can't, I don't have, I'm gonna run out of time. But my mom and dad, both traditionalists. Here's what my mom passed on to me. Um, every day, as far as I can remember, after I learned how to read, every morning before I went to school, my mom made me read a chapter in the book of Proverbs before I got on the school bus. And then she would quiz me about that chapter. Some days I would get into that space like I just described a few minutes ago where I would like daydream and lose track. And then she'd say, what did you read? And I would throw out these general things that I had read before because I'd read it enough times that it, it has to be there someplace. Right. I read that. But here's the thing that's interesting. What if, what if in our ways that we connect with God, we pass on to our kids or the people that we're mentoring or discipling, things that they hold on to long after we're gone. Because there was one day when I didn't have to do what mom told me to do anymore. You know what I did? I found the book of Proverbs and I read a chapter in the book of Proverbs that day. There's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, one chapter for every day. Some days, there's, some months there's only 28 days and so you read a couple extra. Some days there's only 30. Some months, there's, excuse me, there's only 30 and so you read an extra one. And I've done that for as, far, for as long as I can remember. And it's interesting, interesting because just think about this if you can pass this on and how powerful it is in helping us connect with God. That on the day I asked my mom and dad for permission to ask Angie to be my wife. I got my Bible out and I read a chapter in the book of Proverbs. The day Angie and I packed up our little U-Haul and went to Broken Arrow, Oklahoma and set our journey out to Bible college. That morning I woke up and I read a chapter in the book of Proverbs. The day we were married, I got out this Bible and I read a chapter in the book of Proverbs. On the day we found out we were having twins, I had opened this book and read a book, read a chapter in the book of Proverbs. The day the twins were born, had this book out, read a chapter in the book of Proverbs. The day we buried my mom, I got out this book and I read a chapter in the book of Proverbs. The day I found out 
that my dad was cancer-free. I started that day by getting this book out, reading out loud a chapter in the book of Proverbs. The day we were told that we were gonna be grandparents, I had this book out. Y'all seen where I'm going? And I read a chapter in the book of Proverbs. The day that grandchild's born, I'm gonna open this book and I'm gonna read a chapter in the book of Proverbs. And as soon as that child's old enough to read, if their parents don't beat me to it, I'm gonna sit down with them. We're gonna read out loud a chapter in the book of Proverbs. Because the cry of my heart is to help humanity connect with God. And that's the reason why I wanted to have this discussion with you. If from the very beginning of God's creation, the beginning of the church age, if, if he doesn't mandate the how of individual worship, why should we? Doesn't mean the how isn't important. What it means is he gives us the freedom to explore and connect with him. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this promise to you that if we are going to truly see the next generations touched and changed with the transforming power of the gospel, we are going to have to lay down our personal preferences and really awaken to the fact that there is one God who loves them, who gave his son for them. There's one God, but there's many ways to relate and connect with him. And I'm gonna make you this promise. If we stay stuck in our ways and our predominant styles, we will lose an entire generation because of our dogmas and our obstinance and our narrow focus of what and how God moves. And may it not happen on our watch.